Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast with myself, Mayhem, and my wonderful co-host, Aisha. We're going to be talking about the big picture, a little bit of macro. But before we do that, I want to bring Aisha in. Hey, Aisha. Hey, Mayhem. So we have quite an exciting week ahead of us, huh? It's one of the biggest weeks in earnings season. 42% of S&P 500 market capitalization will be reporting. It's definitely going to be a market mover. We're out of OPEX, so we're unpinned. Very interesting time. I agree. Definitely. Now, if you look at the earnings, it's not that exciting, though. So what we've been seeing is, um, so if you look at the earnings on the NASDAQ, we're down about 29% in earnings Ouch. decline. Yes, that really hurts. And if I compare this to the S&P, it hurts even more because the S&P is showing a 6.3% decline in earnings. So there's a big, big variance between the NASDAQ and the S&P. And it's interesting, too, because the NASDAQ at one point was bid up over 20% year to date. Now it's up about 15%. And the S&P is up, what, about 6%. So the S&P's earnings haven't declined as much. And yet it hasn't performed the same way as the NASDAQ. It's almost like there's a growing disconnect here. Absolutely. That's what it seems like. If you go back a year, we're almost recovered to where we were a year ago on the NASDAQ. The S&P, however, shows you a very different story. We're still far below where we were about a year ago. So it's quite interesting in terms of how these two indexes move. I believe the NASDAQ does move faster than the S&P, and it does have a higher beta. But then that brings with it certain risks, right? It does. Absolutely. The NASDAQ is a more volatile index. It also is full of long duration risk, which in this end cycle environment really shouldn't be outperforming. So that what we're seeing year to date really has all the hallmarks of a bear market rally. You've got these lower quality components, you know, leading the way. You also have just seven mega cap stocks accounting for 90% of the gains in the S&P 500. So there's no breadth here. This is some of the lowest breadth we've seen since the market topped out in late 2021 for these same techs. And then if you look at valuations, that tells you a whole different story as well. So right now, the valuation on the NASDAQ, well, if you look at the equal weighted NASDAQ, the valuation on that is about what? 36 times earnings, whereas a year ago, we were something around 30 times earnings. So in fact, over the course of a year, the valuations have become richer, whereas we're looking for valuations to actually go down. When I say go down, I mean correct a little bit. Now, Many people do think that growth companies should have higher valuations, and that is true to a certain extent. But what we're seeing here, rather, is that prices are remaining stagnant, let's say, whereas earnings are coming down. And that's what's leading to this rich valuation on the NASDAQ. And it's funny, isn't it? Because growth companies should have a, a higher valuation if... They're growing, but they're not. 
they're declining and yet their valuations are becoming richer. This is a, a very interesting paradigm. And remember, we've heard the discourse, right? Forget the macro, forget fundamentals. We're just all in on tech all the time. And there's this reflexive muscle memory because for the better part of 11 years, that was the part of the market that led. But I think people are forgetting something here. There was also about a decade where the NASDAQ went sideways. Absolutely. And while I don't want to jinx the whole thing, I do think that we need to see some re-rating in these companies, right? There's been a lot of fluff that's been built into many of these companies. I mean, one of the things that everybody's talking about is the year of efficiency, right? Now, these companies should have been efficient all the while, but they're not, right? And now suddenly... That's a great point. It reminds me of what Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said as he was laying off a workforce of about 12,000 people. He sees many difficult years ahead. And this is a CEO who's done a really good job leading this company into its next stage of growth, prioritizing software as a service with Azure and Microsoft 365. They're two key areas of growth, which we'll hear more about this week. But this is also a CEO who has a vision looking past the next quarter and the quarter after. He's looking years ahead and saying, it's still going to be a rough and tumble journey. And I think this is important to consider because these companies engaged in a lot of largesse, even Microsoft. They took on too many people, too much office space, too many pie in the sky projects. And now they're having to pull back. And we're realizing as the tide comes out, how many of these companies were just far too aggressive during this period of time. And Satya is a very, very intelligent man. So if he's saying this about the technology sector, um, we should listen. But before we move on, I think I just wanted to explain that we have decided to go ahead and do an earnings preview of all the earnings coming up during the week. We do a recording, we go through each and every day's earnings, like the prominent ones. We talk about what we're looking at or what we're looking for and um, how it affects the macro in general. So if you'd like to know more about that, head on over to our site, macrovisor.com, and you can sign up at a 50% discount, which is still ongoing until the end of the month. And this 50% discount is for your first full year. Whether you sign up for a monthly plan or a yearly plan, that discount translates for that entire span of time. And this was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun doing this with you. We, we tackled almost 50 companies, giving previews on all of them in that segment with a slide deck that I think helps people to get a better idea of what's happening over the next two weeks or the majority of the S&P report. So folks, if you enjoy our content, please check us out. Go ahead and subscribe. You can visit us at macrovisor.com. But without further ado, let's pivot to inflation. Yes, the other big thing coming up this week. So among all the earnings re reports, I completely forgot that we actually have economic data as well that matters. <laughs> <laughs> it is a pretty busy week, isn't it? It is a busy week indeed. So we get PCE numbers on Friday. And that should be pretty interesting after what we saw in the CPI data. 
Yeah, that's true. That was a really interesting report for March's data. It came in cooler than expected, and it's not necessarily something that we can count on moving forward. But PCE, it did give us a preview for what we might see at the end of this week. So let's unpack it just a little bit, what we saw, why it matters. Absolutely. So I think one thing that I'm looking into, obviously, is rent and housing. Now, if you look at the housing data over the last couple of um, months, it has cooled considerably. However, over the last two months, um, we are seeing some reacceleration in prices in the housing market. And that is certainly um, something that will translate into PCE numbers as well. At the same time, I think prices still remain quite high in general. And with mortgages going up enormously, I think a lot of people want to defer this purchase of houses at this point in time, right? I think another thing that we, you and I spoke about was, you know, the expectations of a pivot. So since there's all this talk in the market that, you know, the the Fed might cut rates, I think people will wait until rates do come down for them to take out their first mortgage so that they can get them at better rates. And all of this leads to one place, and that is increases in rent. So although we're supposed to see rent inflation come down somewhere around this time, so I had it at May, May, June, let's say, and then we get those results in June and July, which is what the Fed as well said. I do think that there is a chance we see some reacceleration in the rentals, and that could actually push up inflation a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So moving forward, when we start to look at the inflation data that we'll get from April in May, that's going to probably paint a slightly different picture than what we saw for the March data that we receive this month in CPI and to come with PCE. During the month of April, we had significant strength in commodities like coffee, sugar, cattle, Even things like energy rallied significantly off their March lows, and that's going to plug some degree of higher inflation into that April CPI and PPI data, which may set us up for a little bit of a reset of expectations for which the pace of disinflation may be occurring. Excellent points. The one other point that I wanted to touch on a little bit is medical expenses, right? So we're seeing a lot of changes in the medical sector, and some of those changes are bound to affect, you know, the CPI or the PCE as well. So everything that we've heard from United Health, from HCA hospitals, and from the medical equipment companies like Intuitive Surgical, we understand that procedures are going up. Right. So people, all this pent up demand from deferring health care is now coming back. And the problem with deferring health care is that when you don't go to the doctor immediately, it obviously gets much worse. And so therefore you end up spending much more to treat whatever condition you had. And so all of this will drive up the cost of health care. At the same time, we see labor demand come back in the healthcare sector. And there as well, I think we might see some increase in um, labor prices where the healthcare sector is concerned. 
Finally, we have the pharmaceuticals. If you look at the CPI number for the pharmaceuticals, you see it going up progressively. And this, one of the reasons for this is a slight change in how well, it's not actually a slight change. It's quite a major change in how, you know, the CMS is going to reimburse, you know, health insurers and um, the changes that is coming about because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So increasingly, the government is going to pull back from a high level of reimbursements. And what this means, oh, and it, there's also the issue that they are putting a cap on increasing pharmaceutical prices, right? So on the one hand, you have drug manufacturers who are increasing prices now before the Inflation Reduction Act comes into you know, uh, play. They're, they're increasing prices now so that later on they're not affected as much by these. And on the other hand, you have fewer or a less proportion of let's say, uh, reimbursements, which at the same time will drive up prices even more. So when you look at all of these things together, I think uh, keeping an eye on the medical numbers will be a little important going forward because there are these changes that are taking place. There's going to be a huge amount of disenrollment from Medicaid as well as um, you know the healthcare emergency plans go away. And we're going to see something like 70, 75 million people being disenrolled from the Medicaid program, uh, which they had been enrolled in during the pandemic era. So this is going to put a huge pressure on costs in the healthcare sector, and it's sure to drive up the CPI and the PCE uh, in terms of inflation. And, you know, this is in the United States of America, where the leading cause of bankruptcy is medical costs. So this is going to be a driver of more problems. You know, you have consumers, the majority of which do not have a thousand dollars or more in their rainy day fund. A lot of these healthcare costs are going to be increasing. Forty percent are behind on their bills. Two thirds are living paycheck to paycheck. So just imagine the stress this adds, particularly after SNAP, after SNAP benefits have already rolled off. And we're starting to see some challenges to whether or not the deferment of repaying student debt is going to be possible. So these are all factors that converge at the same time, putting pressure on already beleaguered lower income consumers in, in this country. Really, only the top 20 percent are doing well right now. So I think that's great coverage to kind of consider as we move forward towards April, the data that we'll see from April, I should say, in May, that we're likely to see higher levels than many are expecting. So as you were speaking, something that just occurred to me is, as these people get rolled off of Medicaid, they will have to look for insurance somewhere. And as you're saying that, you know, costs are already going up for people and, you know, with inflation still remaining relatively high, people are out of pocket, right? And so paying premium on insurance is going to be very difficult for many people. And this could actually be a reason for people to go back to work because many companies do cover healthcare insurance. And so uh, I won't be surprised if you see a lot of people wanting to go back to work because they need healthcare insurance from their employer. 
Yeah, this is actually a very good point. And, and for people who are out there listening that aren't familiar with this, if you are on an individual healthcare plan that you're paying for out of pocket, it is much more expensive premiums. There is much lower levels of coverage. Your deductible is going to be much higher and your options are extremely limited. The, the contrast between an individual plan, whether it's for yourself or your family and a group plan that's part of an organization is significant. Now, if you're out there listening and you, you didn't know you could get a group plan as a self-employed person, in many states, you actually can. So if your business is already struggling and you're dealing with healthcare issues, just as a brief, you know, just to discuss this in brief, there are options that you may want to talk to. You may want to talk to a healthcare broker if you have a small business and you haven't taken on a group policy, because that can be a good way to save money and possibly save your business while also giving your employees some benefits that could help to retain them. So just a little bit of a segue there to talk about some of the things that are going on underneath the surface in healthcare. And we'll also say one of our ideas is long healthcare. We see relative strength versus the broader market in the healthcare sector. So if you take XLV, you make a ratio chart with that against SPY, you can see that it's starting to form a base. And that base is a really encouraging development for this more defensive sector. What it's telling us is that institutions are rolling allocations into healthcare. They're also rolling allocations into other more defensive end cycle sectors like consumer staples, which has been an Aisha favorite, a pick that we definitely believe has some more room to go, particularly in a pair trade of, say, healthcare versus tech or staples versus the broader market. Those pair trades may be ones to consider in an end cycle environment should they fit one's risk profile. And of course, it's not investment or trading advice, just our ideas that we want to share as a part of this educational content. So moving right along, we also have quarter one GDP preliminary data coming out on Thursday. That'll also give us a little bit of a preview of PCE. We get the quarter over quarter PCE in that data as well. But let's go back just a little bit to what we saw at the end of last year. Absolutely. So I think one of the biggest things that we saw at the end of last year when the GDP numbers were reported was the unsustainability of what was driving the GDP numbers. So you always want consumption to be able to drive GDP. And that's like the healthy kind of driver, right? But a big item that we saw last time around was inventories. So we know that we saw a huge uh, increase in inventories towards the end of last year. So let's say third quarter, fourth quarter. I think Nike was one of the first ones. Nike and Walmart were one of the first two who came out and actually said it that they, you know, they had over ordered and they had too much inventory. And that obviously played through the entire retail sector and remained quite significant even to the end of the year. And we saw this in the GDP numbers. And the problem with this is that you know what you want from these retailers, right? You want them to get rid of this inventory. You want them to discount. You want them to, however, it's possible that you want them to sell this stock that they have, right? And if you want it, Therefore, inventories are going to come down. And this is what the companies want as well, right? And so I think what we're going to be seeing in the first quarter is definitely a decline in this inventory. 
but maybe not as much as we want to see, right? Because we saw those March retail numbers and the biggest area of weakness was general merchandise. We see the credit card spending data from Bank of America and Citigroup saying similar that people are just spending more on staples than they are on these items that, you know, are conveniences or merchandise items. I think that that's telling us also a story about the consumer, that they just don't have the budgetary elasticity to take on these purchases. They're using debt to pay for things they need rather than things they want. And that's a bit of an issue in an economy that for so many decades has been driven by using debt to pull forward future discretionary demand. We seem to no longer be in that paradigm. We seem to be in one that is much more, let's say, resetting what's happened, where we had something like three decades of lower highs and lower lows in interest rates which allowed people to leverage up, purchase homes, cars, all kinds of other items. Now we're on the other side of that. We have the great hangover where rates are high, liquidity is low, credit conditions are tightening. And by the way, and Aisha, you know this better than I, when credit conditions are this tight for this long, there's never not been a recession. When we see 11 months of leading economic indicators falling more and more, well, after just six months of that, since 1960, there's always been a recession. So the last thing we're really waiting for is the yield curve to steepen out of inversion. That's going to be the indicator that it's on our doorstep. And I think you made a really interesting point about inventories, because this is an area that we saw really a lot of build into the end of last year that helped to support GDP. We also saw two other unsustainable components, right? We saw an increase in non-defense government spending for things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the Science and Chips Act. And we and those seem to be going nowhere, by the way. So that spending is probably going to drop off, particularly as we're in this tenuous period before the debt ceiling kabuki theater is finally resolved. And then we also had exports drop less than imports and initial data is starting to show us that the opposite is true right now. Absolutely. So again, what we're seeing is certain artificial measures, let's say, that's propping up the GDP. So unfortunately, I, I think, you know, this time around, we do see a depressed number. I, I doubt we will see a number that, you know, the Atlanta Fed is quoting. How much is the Atlanta Fed quoting right now? <laughs> They're very optimistic, Aisha. They're looking for 2.5%. The consensus is 1.5%. Which is much higher than Exactly. The consensus or even what the other data tells us. Right. So we've been tracking all of this data month on month and all of this feeds into the GDP. So if you look at retail sales, it fell far more than expected in March. Right. So I think January was still a slightly um positive month or strong month, let's say, relatively. And that's a, because the weather was better in the U.S., um, B, you still have some of that spending from, you know, the holiday period. And C, you also had some increases in the cost of living adjustment, which kind of helped people and, you know, help them spend a little bit more. And after having a somewhat of a depressing year in 2022, I think people were just happy to be able to spend a little and go out and do things. But I don't think that's going to be the norm. And we've seen that in February and we've seen that in March. And things have started to slow considerably. What we're also seeing is some of the leading indicators like new orders or manufacturing and all of that as well decline. 
The other thing that you spoke about um, with regard to tightening conditions. So one of the side effects of tightening conditions, obviously, is decline in capital expenditures, which is, again, another uh, another, you know, part of the GDP. So you want capital expenditures to actually improve in a country, right? So that you can increase production and that production can obviously increase consumption and so on and so forth. And that's how we go uh, positive. But what we're seeing is just the opposite. And when conditions are this tight, growth is bound to come down. So I think we get the senior loan officer survey um, in the first 10 days of May, I think maybe 9th or 10th. I think this is going to be one of the most watched senior loan officer surveys ever. Um, but it will be interesting to see because it will cover, you know, the banking crisis that we recently had and the tightening thereafter. And we're still seeing banks borrowing from that bank term lending facility. Those levels have continued to rise as discount window borrowing has kind of leveled off. We still see some stresses, particularly in these small and mid-sized regional banks who have an inordinate amount of exposure to commercial real estate debt. Of all the banks that hold that debt, they account for about 70%. Banks in total hold about 50% of all that debt. And we're starting to see some signs of stress, particularly in office space utilization, where it's just not coming back. It's just not coming back. And the lease renewal rates are dropping too, which tells us if anything, vacancy rates are going to be on the rise. So if you're a bank and you're holding this debt, what are you going to do? Are you going to lend more? No, you have to lend less. And if you're using that Fed facility and you're taking a punitive negative carry rate on your duration that you're you know, putting up as collateral, you're likely to want to raise cash anywhere you can, which means letting loans and assets mature and trying to attract deposits with higher rates. So all of that tells us what? That credit conditions are probably going to tighten further from here. Speaking of depressing economies, let's move right on to Japan. Absolutely. We have an interesting week for Japan as well. Um, Governor Ueda, or Ueda, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, I'm sorry. But he holds his first meeting this weekend and um, should be an interesting one. It should be an interesting one. He has given some speeches and he has spoken to what he would like to see. And one of the things that he does want to see is long-term inflation in Japan holding over 2%. Now, they're already at that level, but he thinks inflation is transitory. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and this time he might be right. Because one of the reasons that Japan's inflation actually increased is um, the same as what we saw in the U.S. to a certain extent, which is cost pressures, right? So if the prices of inputs and commodities began to fall with a slowdown in global growth, inflation will retreat, right? So since this is supply-side cost push inflation, um, it's it may not be uh, sticky. It may be transitory. However, what he's looking for rather is demand pull inflation, which is driven by consumption. And one of the things he wants to see is higher wages, which will help people put money in their pockets and therefore consume more. And that kind of inflation is actually the healthier kind of inflation, which is driven by higher consumption. So 
we'll see what he has to say uh, during the meeting. But obviously, I don't think that he's going to make any changes to the policy right now. And what do you think about that moving forward? Because this is such an interesting conversation. Japan has been in this sort of perpetual mode of easing. Balance sheet has been largely expanding over the last several decades. They've never really recovered from that real estate crisis that crescendoed in the 1990s. And it feels like they've kind of been trapped, almost like a zombie economy. Do they ever get out of their own way? And just to preface this, before you answer, the Bank of Japan owns 46% of Japanese debt. And the Japanese government owns 55% of the Bank of Japan, which is actually publicly traded. I don't know if a lot of folks out there listening know that. It's very interesting. It's actually, you can buy stock in the Bank of Japan if you're bullish on the Bank of Japan. But this is kind of like, you know, if you look at the picture of an Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail, it's fascinating that the government owns the central bank, which owns the debt of the government. What do you make of where this goes? So, Let's take a step back and let's look at the new governor a little bit. So I did some research on his background and where he's come from and all of that. So he he went to MIT. And interestingly enough, he studied under Stanley Fisher. And guess who else studied under Stanley Fisher? Ben Bernanke and Mario Draghi. So... I don't see um, him take major measures um, of tightening at this moment because he he believes in the easing of policy, right? The other thing about him is um, when there was a vote, you know, he was on the board of governors uh, sometime back as well for the Bank of Japan. And when there was a vote against zero interest rate policy, he actually voted for zero interest rate policy to stay. Okay. So I'm sure his views have changed since then because continuing yield curve control and this sort of easing can go on forever, as you said, right? Um, Sure, the Bank of Japan, the government of Japan, they don't have a limit as to how much, you know, they can buy in terms of JGBs. Japanese government bonds, but at the same time, it's not a great policy for the country. So I think, you know, there's been reports, in fact, you sent me an article today that says that, you know, he's going to undertake a thorough review of what's going to happen, you know, of what's been happening. Uh, And that's what an academic does, right? He's a professor, he's an academic, and he's going to review what's happened. And his decisions will probably be more measured and slower um, than expected. But I do think he comes to a point where the yield curve control is slowly eased out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a really important situation to monitor because the Bank of Japan has been one of the liquidity providers for the global financial system for so long that as that shifts, it's going to be important and and we'll probably see markets take a bit of a different view on risk and the appetite for it as that occurs. So this has been a really amazing discussion. I want to be mindful of everyone's time who is listening to this. We appreciate all of our listeners out there for everyone who hasn't tuned into this podcast before. Be sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcast service. If you enjoy our content, we're available on every single one and also check us out. We've got a sub stack at macrovisor.com. 
where we have right now a 50% off sale for the first year. That sale ends on May 1st, so you can take advantage of it whether you sign up for a monthly or yearly plan. Look forward to our next podcast coming to you next Tuesday. Until then, we'll catch you next time.